Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 23rd of May. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. Yesterday, the Central Statistics Office reported further drops in wholesale electricity prices. Last month, prices fell by 13.5%. Over the course of the year, since April of 2022, wholesale prices have dropped a massive 42.5%. Not that we know In fact, while prices have dropped by 42.5% over the last 12 months, household bills have increased by 51%. Let's speak to Padder Tobin, who's founder and leader of the AIM2 party and a TD for Mead West and on the line. A very good morning to you, Padder. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You're saying that the government must intervene here to make things a little bit more affordable for people. Yeah, so it's, it's an incredible situation that we have in the last year. People have actually got poorer in this country. So yeah, people's <clears throat> incomes are in reverse. The first time in a long period of time uh, where actually our incomes are worth less in terms of spending. And that's because obviously the prices have been allowed to rise so dramatically uh, over the last year. <clears throat> and the frustration is amongst many people is that while we are paying massive prices for electricity and other fuel sources, these energy companies are actually making significant profits uh, at this time. And they've been allowed to make these significant profits because of the, the fact that they haven't dropped their prices. Now, I do understand, obviously, that many companies hedge and they future purchase uh, electricity. And as a result, that can keep prices higher in the long term. Mm. But if you even look at the government's own uh, electri- electricity company, Electric Ireland, um, this is a, a semi-state company in the ownership of the state, and its profit doubles to more than 649 million euros last year. Um, and the government has complete power over uh, how this company uh, operates. And in many ways, the, go- the government is allowing this company and other electri- electricity companies win the lottery every single day in terms of profitability. It is very hard to argue with that because it seems, like you say, they hedge. In other words, they buy in advance. Uh, In some cases, they buy uh, electricity on the wholesale market two years in advance. Uh, So they have to charge what they've paid for it, in other words. But if they're making these incredible profits, uh, something doesn't add up in that argument. 
Yes, yeah, so they hedge at all times. So in, in, in advance of the electricity wholesale spike, these companies had also future purchased or, or, or hedged, uh, which would have meant that actually the increase in electricity would have been far slower than it happened. But as often is the case, and people will know this, prices quickly go up, but they very slowly come down. And, you know, if these companies were, were suffering from still high hedged wholesale prices, their profitability levels wouldn't be as high as they are. So practically every energy company is making super normal profits at the moment. Now, the way the other European countries have dealt with this is that they've enforced windfall taxes mm. on these companies for two reasons. One, because these are massive profits being made on the, on the backs of suffering from people. But two, by implementing a windfall tax, you're actually putting pressure on these energy companies to reduce their profits. Uh, because the energy companies realise there's no mm. point in making a super normal profit if the government's going to take it. But isn't so that what the government the Ital- is going to do? Well, this is it. Now, the Italian government introduced this last year, uh, and it's collected about €4 billion. Euros. Germany and Spain introduced it uh, in December. Even the British Tory government have introduced it, and it's making uh, significant uh, taxation uh, receipts as a result of this. But our government has been talking about this now solidly since last July. And, and, and yet we have no piece of legislation before us in the Dáil uh, in relation to this. There is discussions, a committee uh, on a, a draft uh, in relation to this. But the government has been glacial in terms of delivering on this. And it's, it's an example of the government's response to everything. The government is really slow in getting to grips with issues of major importance. Well, it's already resulted in huge returns for the Exchequer anyway, hasn't it, Uh, because of uh, the taxes that they would ordinarily pay. You're saying uh, windfall taxes on top of that to go with uh, the profit that they're making on top of the profit that they would normally make. Uh, But then you talk about Electric Ireland, uh, the state-owned company, uh, and the government takes a, a dividend from that, and as its profits increase, the dividend increases too. Yeah, so like, there's no doubt, obviously, that there is, it is circular to a, a certain extent in terms of the uh, Electric Ireland. But the point of a windfall tax is that it puts pressure on companies to reduce their profit margins and actually brings those profit margins down to help people. There's a full 20% of this population currently in fuel poverty at the moment. Now, that's horrendous. And this is biting incredibly hard on people. I know people who are literally maxed out in overdrafts from month to month. They're mm. waiting until Thursday and Friday this month so they can pay off an overdraft nearly in, in its entirety uh, for last month. People are maxed out on credit cards yeah. and a lot of people are suffering from money lenders. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's no arguing with any of that. And it's not just electricity. A quarter of gas customers are in arrears, which in itself uh, is incredible to think of. And we've a survey uh, from Taxback, uh, which says that 90% of people want more help to help with the energy costs. And, and here's one of the really important issues, well, that people are forgetting, is that we in Ainsley have put in a large number of uh, parliamentary questions to analyse what kind of taxation the government is making out of all of this. So we found out that in, uh, from electricity, from VAT and electricity, the government has achieved record receipts. €381 million Euros, uh, were taken in last year in terms of VAT receipts. That's an increase in 40% uh, in the VAT that they've received off electricity. And across every single fuel type, the government is raking it in, in terms of extra VAT receipts. Now, the government are, are saying that they're, they're doing everything they can in relation to this. They're clearly not. They're actually part of the problem because they 
are charging, they are receiving more in terms of VAT than they ever did before. They but that, that's what you're suggesting back. they do, just on a, a greater scale with a windfall tax. It won't bring the prices down, but uh, the energy providers will yeah, be taxed think, more. So what happens then with the taxes that the government raises? How do they give that back to people? Should it be uh, a 100 or a 200 euro energy credit as they've been doing up to now? Well, first of all, the windfall tax is a stick to actually reduce profits because it does have the effect on energy companies of reducing their prices. And there's no logic to keeping prices high if the government is just going to take it in terms of a windfall tax. Now, what we're saying in AIM2 is very simply is we're asking for a reduction in the tax that's charged on uh, electricity. So currently we have the carbon taxes, which are being raised still in this cost of living crisis. We want that uh, reduced and the government could reduce the VAT yeah. on uh, fuel right across the board. It, it has been done in the likes of Spain uh, and Italy again, but the government have, here have refused to do it. There is no sense in the government creaming it in terms of uh, high VAT receipts, while at the same time 20% of the population are uh, in fuel poverty, that they can't sleep at night because they're wondering what bill they have to pay. And just one other point on this as well, which is really frustrating, and one of the reasons why gas prices have lowered so much in Europe and electricity prices are lowering is because Europe has found new LNG gas supplies um, to uh, make sure that it can have a steady supply of gas. One country in the whole of Europe <clears throat> doesn't have gas storage, and that's Ireland. And yet we are probably one of the most dependent on gas for electricity generation. A half of all of our electricity is generated by gas. Now, I believe it's reckless beyond and what's, what's acceptable by this government to proceed with a policy of refusing to create a gas storage. The only country uh, without a gas storage and us the most exposed to increase in prices okay. of gas. And there's been no movement over the last year uh, in terms of that. Indeed, the government is ideologically opposed because of the Green Party of, uh, in dealing with LNG gas in this crisis time. All right. Uh, just uh, while you're with us, uh, I'd like you to reflect on the weekend, uh, if you will, uh, because you're the founder and leader of a political party that has grown pretty dramatically in strength. Uh, I think it's true to say since inception, uh, but it really wasn't a good weekend for you. I think where you were hoping to make gains in the council elections in Northern Ireland, you lost the only seat you held. Yeah, no, it was a tough election uh, for AIM2. There's no doubt about that. Um, it was a tough election for all the small parties in the North. The Greens, People for Profit, and even the SDLP all lost significant vote share and all lost council seats as well. And in actual fact, I suppose AIM2's loss was the smallest percentage-wise of all of those uh, political parties. There was a dynamic in this election that we couldn't control, and there was a significant um, tide for Sinn Féin in this election, uh, Sinn Féin had a very good election, and that tide was fueled by a frustration in the nationalist community uh, in relation to the DUP's collapse of Stormont and their refusal to accept uh, a, na- a nationalist first minister. <clears throat> so when you're caught between those kind of the big beasts in, in an election such as this, it's very hard uh, to go forward. Uh, so no matter what we tried to do, we couldn't affect that dynamic at all. But tides come in and tides come out. And we, we saw in 2019 Sinn Féin lost dozens of council seats throughout the country in the local election here. But in the subsequent election, obviously, they won a large number of doll seats. So um, there are some positives for, for AIM2 in this election. We've tripled our membership in the north in just the last 18 months. We've identified a whole range of strong new candidates, men and women, 
all immersed in important campaigns such as Daisy Hill Hospital Campaign, Causeway Hospital Campaign as such. So we're going to spend the next year, this, the, the, uh, the Westminster election will happen some stage next year, uh, and we will rebuild and we'll be back. We very, very strongly believe in, in our uh, political platform. Uh, we're not career politicians. We didn't choose an easy road. Um, we chose a road that we feel that's important for the development of this country. Uh, and we'll continue to grow over the next number of years. Back on home turf, people continue to be really upset, disgusted, uh, appalled. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if there's one single word uh, that you can use uh, to explain how people are feeling about uh, the attack on that 14-year-old boy in Navin last week. Uh, But uh, as people listening know, five boys were arrested over the weekend. The Irish Independent is reporting today that the Gardaí have been giving them personal security advice. Uh, They've been receiving so many threats online that they're concerned about the five boys' mental health uh, and uh, that there may indeed be an attack on them. I'm sure uh, you'd be as appalled at uh, the idea of that as anything else, including the original attack. Yeah, the original attack was an absolutely hateful crime. And uh, it's incredible to think that any student would be walking home and to be set upon by a number of individuals. And the ferocity of that attack in terms of, you know, when even the the individual had fallen to the ground and continued with kicks and thumps uh, raining in on him. Um, And that's a very frightening thing for a child at that stage, and no doubt will have an effect over that child, um, you know, for, for the rest of his life. Um, however, we, we, we are a liberal democracy, and we have a, a process, a democratic, or a legal process, and as a result, we need to make sure that the Guardi do their job to the full extent, that they collect all of the evidence, and they bring that evidence to a court of law, and that a judge decides what uh, penalties um, these individuals, these perpetrators, should uh, experience. It would be absolutely wrong if we if we uh, become a country of mob rule in which uh, people uh, from society mm. um, you know attack uh, these individuals in any ways. Uh, we need to make sure that they they experience the full um, cost of the law in terms of penalties being brought to them. But we need to let the Gardaí do the job. And indeed, I'll be speaking with Gardaí today in relation to uh, that particular case to make sure that. And they have everything in their means to make sure that um, the, the culprits of this horrendous attack are brought uh, to justice. OK, but I ask people to leave it to the guards and to the courts. And uh, I suppose uh, you'd expect if anybody was found guilty that uh, they'd face criminal charges. Uh, that may not be the case. Uh, there is speculation that there won't be criminal charges, uh, but there will be a caution under the juvenile diversion programme. What do you think of, of that? Well, um, I'd be cautious about that. My, my instinct is, is that we, we are seeing uh, an increase in violence uh, by young people on other young people. And, you know, I, I do think that at a certain stage in teenage years, it's very clear to young people what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, I, I honestly believe that this was a criminal act and we need to make sure that this um, this... Is, is rooted out of our society. Well, I've no and doubt from the feedback we've been getting to the programme, people listening to us will be very upset if criminal charges aren't brought against somebody, if a caution is given to somebody if they're found guilty. I, I think so, and I also think that you know, um, this, this is a discussion that we've been having actually for the last number of years with Gardaí, in that what we see is that when crime is carried out by 
young people, what happens is um, it's a very, very slow process before criminal act or criminal charges are brought. And as a result, the deterrent does not seem to be there in relation to uh, criminal acts by young people. And, you know, I, I do understand that nobody wants to see a young person for, you know, for a fleeting moment of madness, have their whole lives changed uh, and, uh, you know, go down a, a road of, you know, disastrous criminal uh, life. But we do need to know that there's a penalty, that there's an absolute cost to people who carry out such violent acts and that that cost will be there in terms of anybody who carries out those acts in the future. We need a deterrence to make sure that our children can get home safely from school. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's leader and founder of the AIM2 party. Peter Tobin is a TD for Meath West. Michael Reed on LMFM. Family and friends of Vicky Phelan will be in Drogheda this Friday when they bring the Vicky Phelan campaign and portrait tour to the Barbican Centre. We can speak to Keen O'Carroll, who has acted as Vicky Phelan's solicitor throughout her very long, hard fought campaign. And a very good morning to you, Keen O'Carroll, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Uh, can you tell us what's planned in the Barbican Centre on Friday? Well, the Vicky Phelan portrait is uh, a very large uh, three-panel or triptych painting which shows not just Vicky Phelan, but it tells the story of her life, um, not just also the life that we've come to learn since her groundbreaking legal action in 2018 that blew the lid off what became the cervical check scandal, but the earlier story through um, just showing or helping to explain how this woman of extraordinary courage came to be the way she was. Mm -hmm. And the portrait, which was painted by Vincent Devine uh, during Vicky's life and in consultation with her, um, is now owned by her family friend from childhood, David Brennan. And he and his wife have really dedicated a vast amount of their time to this tour where the portrait travels around the country. There are events like the one on Friday night at the Barbican, Mm. Uh, in Drogheda. And these events combine the telling of the story of the portrait um, through a 40-45 minute talk, which takes you through the tiniest symbolism and detail within the portrait itself, telling the backstory of Vicky's life. And then there's a panel discussion with people who have been inspired by Vicky and to have known Vicky um, and learned from her about what her legacy is about and what she wanted to achieve and what she wants to keep trying to work towards now that she's gone. And I'm sure you count yourself uh, amongst those uh, who've been inspired. I think the uh, country was uh, inspired by Vicky Phelan. The country mourned the loss of Vicky Phelan. Uh, But I introduced you as somebody who acted as her solicitor. Uh, You were much more than that. You had a a very close relationship, I think, with Vicky Phelan. Um, Well, yeah, yeah, I... We became friends, yeah. and um, I, I think anybody who has come into contact with her um, values any minute that they spent in her company. There was um, a really magical quality about her, and uh, I suppose it's, you're almost shy to say that you were a friend of Vicky Phelan because it sounds like you're boasting. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. You must miss her terribly, actually, do you? I do. I think yeah. of her all the mm. time, um, mm. and we have uh, worked on a lot of very tragic um, cases, and I've seen an awful lot of clients die, and I've attended quite a lot of funerals, and particularly for that large group of women who have been so horribly um, and unfairly 
uh, and negligently affected by the appalling management within cervical check as it was. Mm-hmm. A management that would still be there conducting the exact same service had Vicky Phelan not had the courage to stand up and say, no, okay. I'm not going to take your, your hush money and I'm not going to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, but, uh, the, but the relationship with mm. Vicky has been special. I think you became a member if uh, I'm not sure if you'd agree or take issue with me saying that but I think you became a member of the campaign that Vicky waged indeed that of the 221 group and people will have seen or some people will have seen the podcasts that you recorded with Vicky to talk about the injustice that so many women endured like herself. Um, oh yes, those those um, chats were in in conversation with Vicky Phelan, they're available on on YouTube, and they're very interesting. I think particularly for mm-hmm. the purpose of that was to try and capture a whole lot of information that Vicky had that would be of interest or assistance to women, particularly in her situation. For example, if they had been diagnosed with cervical cancer, or if they were looking towards maybe clinical trials, or just wanted to know what the experience of the treatment was like. And so really it's just taking Vicky through all of that, and she wanted that documented. Mm. Um, It wasn't anyplace else. And everything she did was really to try and assist other people, give them information, empower them, help them. And above all, she kept reminding women and men go to get your screening done, whether it's bowel screening, whether it's um, breast check um, or cervical check. Just because it didn't work for her, she still maintained uh, or uh, continued to be an advocate for screening. And that's an important part of each of these touring events as well. It's to encourage people to partake of what's available uh, and also to be questioning um, within their own lives, of their own health care. And finally, she really wanted to make sure that cervical screening, which was obviously the thing which let her down, uh, was brought home because the outsourcing, and particularly outsourcing abroad, of uh, these vital screening tests back in 2008 mm. uh, was really the, uh, the, the, the backdrop and the cause and of course, she, she, she did so much. She achieved so much in her lifetime. She seemed to have endless energy, uh, particularly so for somebody who had a, a terminal illness. It was incredible to uh, watch and hear her campaign. Uh, there was uh, no stopping Vicky feeling, it would seem. Uh, and she uh, was uh, very successful, of course, uh, in uh, some of the objectives, achieving some of those objectives, particularly the issue of mandatory open disclosure, because uh, a lot of people uh, would have had different outcomes if they'd known about their diagnosis sooner. Um, Yes, although the mandatory open disclosure, as it is now presented through the Patient Safety Act, um, it's about to be enacted, at least. I'm not sure if the president has signed it into law yet, but it's passed all Mm -hmm. stages of the Oireachtas. It has, okay. Um, uh, it, that really is not an expression of what Vicky was looking for. I know some people have said it passes what they call the Vicky test, but the reality is that if that legislation was in place back in 2017, when Vicky first learned of this audit, she would never have learned of it because the legislation ensures that results of these audit tests will not be put on a patient's chart, and it actually specifically excludes excludes finding out about such an audit through the Freedom of Information Act. 
it is expressly excluded from FOI. So really what the state has done with this act is to close the door, realising that the problem, at least I think, they see the problem of cervical check was that Vicky Phelan found out about it. And to stop anybody else finding out about a similar problem in the future, this act protects them. Mm. Despite all of the promises. Oh, absolutely. Despite all of the Which is the promises. I mean, the litany of broken promises, Michael. The first promise was on Taoiseach Leo Varadkar saying that no woman would have to go through a legal battle again. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it has been one after another after another. I had a client in the High Court just last month who senior counsel representing the state and a laboratory put to her uh, the name of one of her children with a learning disability over 1,200 times in an effort to establish that the reason she had been traumatized by, uh, in life was not because of an unnecessary cervical cancer diagnosis and all of the horrific consequences from treatment for that, but because she had a child with a, a mild to moderate learning disability. And that was thrown at her 1,200 times on transcript. Mm. Um, so that is the way the state is defending these cases still in court, despite the uh, much vaunted promise of Leo Varadkar and the reassurances of Michal Martin subsequently that the state was approaching these cases in a humane way and in a non-adversarial way. So, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much up to my gills now with the state's promise. Yeah, um, understandably so. And it, it is exactly what Vicky Phelan said uh, uh, shortly before she passed away. She was saying she didn't want accolades. There were plenty of accolades. Mm. Uh, she said she didn't want accolades uh, or, or broken promises, but there's plenty of broken promises too. Yeah, but I think part of my continuing work on her behalf is to at least um, shine something of a light on the truth of what's going on. Um, Thankfully, uh, each of these women is being uh, represented well and they are not suffering, particularly in terms of the outcome. But the, the, the route that they are obliged to take by the state and their surrogate laboratories uh, is far more adversarial and challenging than it should or need be. I mean, the bottom line here is that the state has a moral responsibility because the state is us. Um, and we have this system at the moment where the state sees us as the problem when it comes to uh, failures in medical care. They like to talk about claims and payouts, as if the women, for example, in the 221 Plus group, whose lives, and I'm not exaggerating here, this is not hyperbole, their lives have largely been destroyed. Um, whether they have died or suffered the most awful uh, internal damage as a consequence of life-saving treatment, um, be it radiation, surgery, or chemotherapy. Uh, Young women who have never been able to have a family, the list goes on. But when the state does that, causes that harm, and it's not deliberate, of course. I mean, nobody suggests that for a second. But where it's established that that is through an unacceptable degree of negligence. State will say, and the doctors will say, oh, well, screening isn't perfect. You don't understand. It's a screening process. There are limitations. And, you know, you don't catch everybody. We do understand that. The courts understand that. The expert medical witnesses who give evidence in the court understand that. However, in cases where it has been established, and in each of these cases it has been established, that that margin of error is not what was the problem that there was a completely gross misreading uh, or mismanagement of a screening process, then the state needs to look after the person that has been harmed as a consequence. That's what we do as a family. 
Mm-hmm. That's what we do as a community. And that's therefore what we must do as a state. And, um, and I really do wish that, that there would be mm. a change in attitude here from the state claims agency, all of the lawyers, they engage, and it comes from the top. Okay. It has to start with Antisha can come down from there. Well, this conversation will continue on Friday in the Barbican. It's open to the public. The door is open at six o'clock. Uh, Ficky's parents are, are going to be there. You'll participate in a roundtable discussion. And of course, the portrait will be there and uh, available for people to view in the Barbican Centre over the weekend as well. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thank you, Michael. Thank you indeed. That's Keane O'Carroll, who acted as Ficky Phelan's solicitor. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you heard this week, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, has signed labelling regulations into law for alcohol products, which will now have to state the calorie content and the grams of alcohol in the product. It'll warn about the risk of drinking if you're pregnant and of developing liver disease if you drink too much. And indeed, it'll warn of the prospect of developing cancer fatal cancers from alcohol consumption. It's the first country in the world to do this. The Minister has said he's reasonably confident that other countries are going to follow suit. The drinks industry is not happy. Cormac Healy is a Director of Drinks Ireland and a very good morning to you Cormac and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. When I say the drinks industry I don't mean uh, the drinks industry in this country uh, on its own. Uh, there's widespread opera- uh, opposition to this across the European Union. Yes, uh, good morning, Michael. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, you are right. We're disappointed uh, that the Minister has has moved ahead with uh, signing this legislation that sets Ireland on a, uh, effectively a solo run uh, in this area, particularly given that the as an EU level, and we are very much uh, um, EU citizens and uh, EU partners, uh, but we're going against uh, an EU harmonised approach, which we believe is the more logical one and protects the single market. And the opposition is is extensive. I mean, you mentioned it there. Uh, but I would say, too, it's it's not just the drinks industry uh, in uh, abroad or in Ireland that, uh, that has... Uh, uh, oppose this. Uh, last year, um, in the EU assessment of this legislation, uh, 13 member states uh, objected and raised concerns, and more recently at WTO level, 10 countries uh, that are the large trading partners of, of the EU and Ireland also raised their concerns. But it was their government that submitted those concerns. This isn't just the, about the industry uh, complaining about this approach. The governments uh, in those 13 EU member states and in those uh, international countries, uh, including the US, UK, Mexico, etc., their governments have objected to the manner in which this is being uh, proceeded with. Okay, but it is in line with uh, the World Health Organization recommendations, isn't it? Well, you know, it, I mean, you know, it is. It is very much uh, a first. I don't necessarily believe that that's a, that 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 is something that we we should see as a virtue. That uh, as the minister called out yesterday. I mean, the industry is is supportive of of providing information to consumers. Uh, in fact, I mean, there's there's. Lots of Irish companies and drinks producers, small and large, that have already started on on the provision of calorie information. They've also introduced uh, voluntary QR codes that give a lot more information about right. responsible drinking. But what we're now being what we're now seeing effectively is, I mean, even on those uh, issues of calorie or alcohol content, the rules being set in Ireland are different to the existing practices across the EU. So that's just simply putting more. 
uh, complexity and cost on, on companies that doesn't serve anybody. Okay, but in um, the interest you know. of public health, uh, I'm looking at the World Health Organization's website at the moment. It says, we're ignoring the bigger picture uh, about the harm from alcohol in our region and the world. Although it's well established that alcohol can cause cancer, it's not widely known uh, in most countries. So they say we need cancer-related health information messages on labels of alcoholic beverages following the example of tobacco products. Well, well, that is their view, but I mean, there's also the case that, I mean, you know, to inform consumers, you should provide them with, with you know, more extensive information than a blunt uh, warning label, if you like, on a, on, a, on a product. I mean, that's that's what we're seeing here. I mean, there is opportunity. I mean, I heard somebody else saying this morning that, I mean, if we want to address these issues, it's about education and, yes, awareness. But, I mean, we have to we have to provide that in a manner that is fair. I mean, the, the labels and the wording that's been talked about here uh, doesn't give any context uh, in terms of uh, volume consumed or whether somebody is a moderate or a light drinker. Uh, it gives no information on that. And that's why we believe that there's a, a greater uh, approach through uh, both on and off label information that can give the full information to consumers. But very much so, Michael, I do have to come back to the point that, I mean, while we are happy to work on this, uh, what we have wanted to do right through uh, the, from the beginning of this mm. process is to work at a harmonised EU level. And that's where this significant okay. opposition is coming to. But let me refer back to the World Health Organisation. They say the latest available data indicates that half of all alcohol attributable cancers in the WHO European region are caused by light and moderate alcohol consumption. Less than one and a half litres of wine uh, or less than three and a half litres of beer in a week. That's why, I mean, we do have, I mean, we're not, we're not talking here, I mean, and, and I mean, I hope that's not the case that we're saying nobody, nobody should uh, take a drink or enjoy a, uh, enjoy a drink. Well, that we seems to be what the World Health Organization is advising. Yeah, but that's, that's not realistic, I think, in fairness. I think most of your listeners will imagine that that's, uh, and, and believe that that's not a realistic proposition. I mean, people like to enjoy a drink. I mean, and, and mm. I mean, you know, in relation but, to... But that cancer, is exactly I'm the not, point. I think, that, I think that is exactly the point. Most of our listeners would uh, feel uh, that's not realistic, uh, but most of our listeners don't know that it causes cancer. I don't necessarily know that that's the case either, Michael. I mean, but but I mean, let's let's look at uh, education and awareness. Let's not look at doing something on a solar run that turns the uh, entire industry upside down in terms of reputation and and cost, and also creates all of this ill will uh, with many of our trading partners. Let's remember, Ireland is a very substantial food and drinks exporter around the world, mm-hmm. and when a country decides to do something unilaterally. We jump on it, and our government jumps on it uh, very quickly. I mean, we're, we we have sang the virtues of the single market throughout the whole Brexit campaign, and now we're doing something that goes right against the single okay. market. Well, it's been signed into law, uh, but deferred for a year or so. So I think we'll be having this conversation quite possibly over the course of the next twelve months. We have to leave it there for the moment, though, Cormac. Thank indeed. you indeed for joining thank you, us today, Cormac Healy, director of Drinks Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. The National Women's Council will hold a protest outside of Leinster House tomorrow morning, campaigning for better abortion care in this country. Later inside the House, the Dáil will hear proposed legislation from people before profit, which would make abortion more accessible. Let's speak to Alana Ryan, Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland. A very good morning. 
morning to you, Alana, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. We've had this review into abortion services. It highlights many gaps in the services. It makes many recommendations. It, it seems, though, there could be a, a year uh, or more before change uh, is uh, coming, uh, um, and that's if there is to be any change. Yeah, I read those reports myself this morning and it's very concerning that the government is suggesting it could be a year before we actually see uh, evidence-led legislative reform on the back of this independent review. So I think that our demonstration tomorrow is really timely. Um, Ultimately, what we're saying is this was a review which was legally mandated, which was a core part of the legislation that came through after the repeal referendum. And what that independent review has found is that there are substantive barriers in abortion access in Ireland. And while some are operational, some are to do with the legal framework and they do require uh, legal amendment to the, the Health Act 2019. So what we're all calling for is for government leadership on this and for this to be a cross-party priority issue so that we can act on that evidence and that we can see those legal amendments taken forward by the government this year. Mm. It's not much of a, a surprise really though that uh, the government has implemented uh, this amendment or will uh, implement this uh, amendment uh, to Breed Smith's legislation, uh, a one-year timed amendment, given the fact that it has um, given this to the Oireachtas Health Committee to look at and no time frame put on that committee to report. So the Oireachtas Health Committee is looking at the um, independent review in two sessions later this month and I am confident that the Health Committee would be in a position to provide strategic guidance to government and recommendations before the summer recess. They're holding two sessions, maybe three sessions. And uh, ultimately, the point of those sessions should be to add value to the Mario Shea report and to provide that strategic guidance to the wider Oireachtas. And that's why we're calling on the Health Committee to have people um, represented uh, by the World Health Organization, by the Centre for Reproduction, productive rights into those evidence sessions because they can provide an international lens and situate Ireland's reform within the context of European-wide developments as well as the 2022 World Health Organization guidelines. Mm. So it is it is feasible for the Health Committee to look at this issue substantively it is feasible and provide recommendations. I'm sure you're right, Alana, it is feasible, but there's no obligation uh, on them to uh, report within a time limit. I mean, there's no obligation, but I do think there's a moral duty here in terms of uh, the women of this country and the ongoing travel that women are experiencing Mm. every day to our nearest neighbour, the UK, and to the Netherlands. And in some cases, then having to order pills and take them without clinical oversight or support because they are being left behind by a legal framework which isn't grounded in their healthcare needs and which ties doctors' hands. Okay, but even at that, I mean, if it it takes three months... Uh, you're talking about uh, the summer recess in between uh, the committee hearing uh, submissions on this in the autumn, making a report possibly coming into budget time, uh, which would stall things uh, going into Christmas before government decides whether to legislate or or not. And then that has to go uh, to both houses to be voted on. 
Yes, of course. You know, I think I think obviously the process is um, multi-stage, but I think that we need that political commitment that this is a priority and that we have uh, committed to take forward the independent review. And ultimately, um, the signals on the operational changes are very positive from the cabinet, but there's, there seems to be a reticence around taking forward the legal changes, even though these are uh, independently recommended uh, by an expert who has spent a year gathering evidence, uh, you know, taking advice uh, based on research projects run out of Trinity College, out of Manchester Metropolitan University, uh, a, a wide public consultation and engagement with stakeholders. And all of that evidence gathering points to significant deficits in our legal framework. So, you know, it, it really isn't good enough to do all that evidence gathering and then not prioritise the political follow through on the back of it. Okay, and what about the operational changes, uh, which uh, I think government uh, agrees with and doesn't need recommendations from the Health Committee or uh, indeed to legislate for because uh, those uh, situations come under the existing legislation and that's got to do with uh, maternity hospitals that are not providing abortion services when in fact they should be because of conscientious objections or the 90% of GPs for example who don't provide uh, abortion services for whatever the reason may be. Yes, so so eight out of our 19 maternity hospitals are still not providing full abortion care in line with the law. And that's five years on from repeal. So really, we do need to see... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. 
in action on that because there's a disproportionate impact on uh, women and pregnant people in rural Ireland um, disabled people uh, you know anyone who's in a situation of domestic abuse and doesn't have uh, ready access to, to leaving the house and, and support to do so you know there's a huge impact of a lack of nationwide coverage on the most marginalised in this country and it just isn't acceptable that five years on 8 out of 19 maternity hospitals are still not providing and as you say that the GP coverage for primary care is is very patchy so we'd really be calling on the government and I think that this is in motion now for the HSE to really look at those operational changes and start to do the the groundwork with the ICGP with the INMO and ensure that we can actually bring more GPs on board and ensure that the hospitals have the resources and the capacity to to ensure they're offering the care in line with the law. Okay. Um, There could be an election, of course, any time over the next few months, uh, quite possibly uh, early next year, uh, and that could put things back even further. Absolutely. And and that's why this has to be a priority in this uh, government's life. You know, I think... This has been, uh, from the beginning, a part of our legislation. It was uh, recognised by then Minister for Health, Simon Harris. It it just isn't the case that you can pass legislation on such an important issue to do with women's health and not keep it under review uh, on the basis that our job is done. And, you know, they're his words, not mine. So that review is over. Uh, And now we need to see the cross-party political follow-through on the back of it. And that's a a cross-party issue. It's non-partisan, it's evidence-led, and it needs to be uh, given the priority that the women of this country deserve. Okay, And Anna, you'll be outside Leinster House at half nine tomorrow morning if people want to join with the Women's Council. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us today. That's uh, Alana Ryan. Uh, Women's Health Coordinator with uh, the National Women's Council of Ireland. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Thanks to anybody who's been in touch. If you've not been in touch and you'd like to make comment, 04198 or telephone number, text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. A number of people in touch about energy bills. It's a joke uh, that the ESB is so expensive. Something needs to be done urgently to bring prices down. Thanks, Deirdre, for that. What about bin collections, says somebody else? The charges are increasing out of control and uh, the government are helpless. The councils should take back the job of waste collection. After all, you do not require a brain to collect rubbish and it would appear that the councils <laughs> would be able to it uh, to do it. Uh, thanks, Sean. Um, didn't quite read Sean's text in full. Uh, Francie, thank you for your message too, saying, Michael, the energy costs is just another version of screwing Irish people. I've always been on top of my bills, particularly energy. And now all of a sudden, for the first time ever, I've lost control of that so much. So I find myself in debt with it uh, and I'm on a plan now. But realistically, the only way that I'll ever clear off my debt and get back on track is to get a loan. Despite that so-called credit given by the brutal government that we have, people really need to rise to greed once and for all. Thanks, Francie. Sorry to hear about uh, the situation that you're in. Jerry in Wilkinstown says uh, that fellow that you're interviewing, Michael, uh, this is Cormac Healy, Director of Drinks Ireland, uh, is only thinking of the profits that they make from selling alcohol so they won't accept talk 
about cancer caused by drinking. Uh, Paddy Duffy in touch about uh, the threats against five boys arrested in relation to uh, that terrible attack on the 14-year-old last week. He says, I'm opposed to any form of vigilanteism. We have to trust in Garda Síochána and uh, the judiciary to deal with law-breaking without fear, favour, malice or ill will, even if those youths never see the inside of a courthouse. Their cards are marked for the future. Thanks, Paddy. Betty says, Michael, uh, the little man Yeans in Navan should be sent to Oberstown for their summer holidays and uh, their parents should pay for the victim's treatment even if it takes them years to pay for it. Thanks, uh, Betty Daly, for that. Somebody else in touch saying, what is it with parenthood these days? Uh, the uh, Parents are to blame uh, and uh, no wonder with all uh, of uh, the things that are, are going on and to the news that parents are, are letting their children do whatever they want and drink whenever they want and come home drunk and so on. And this is uh, referring to this Planet Youth Survey uh, during the week uh, there was a lot in that about parents uh, not minding their children drinking or getting drunk or uh, the idea that our children are deprived of sleep one of the reasons for that is they're taking their phones to bed I'm, I'm not sure if you saw the guidelines on how on what time uh, children should be going to bed this might come as a surprise to you. It might come as a shock uh, to your children. If, if you've got a, a child... And now, th- this survey, by the way, uh, is uh, for the West of Ireland, but I'm sure the bedtime guidelines apply to young people uh, across the country. And the suggested guidelines for bedtime are for a child who's in first year to go to bed at half nine in the evening. In second year, at a quarter to ten. If they're in third year... They could stay up until 10 o'clock, but no longer than that. A quarter past 10 in transition year. Fifth years, bed at half 10. And leaving cert students should be in bed no later than a quarter to 11. There are the guidelines from that uh, Planet Youth report. I just thought I'd... Uh, read them out for you because I, I thought they were interesting and I wonder how many young people go to bed at that time. Half nine in first year, a quarter to 11 for leaving search students. Uh, don't tell your young people if they don't go to bed at that time because they may be very upset at the idea of it. Anyway, if you want to make comment on that or something else today, we'd love to hear from you. You can text us or WhatsApp us on 086 1800 658. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know, public sector workers are to lose uh, their parking spaces, as you've been hearing uh, this morning on LMFM's news. Uh, Senator John McGann thinks it's a bad idea, at least uh, it's too soon to go ahead with that. And Senator McGann is on the line. A very good morning to you, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. What, what, what do you think needs to be done before you take away people's parking spaces, or would you just leave them with their parking spaces? It's a, a great entitlement that public sector workers have. Yeah, no, thanks, Michael. Um, I, I think a couple of things. I, need, I think, well, first of all, we need to provide a massive modal shift within the next decade. Like, we want people using less cars. We want a really good public transport system. Nobody wants to be stuck in traffic. No one wants to have to spend an hour and a half getting to work. So good public transport is the solution. So that's the first thing. However, to entice people towards that modal shift, I think you have to make it as easy and simplistic as possible to make that change. And until viable public transport options are provided, particularly in rural Ireland, I think phasing out public sector car parking spaces before providing that option, I personally don't think that's the best way forward at this point in time. So essentially, if we're going to start making it harder for people to get to work or go about their daily business, how are we going to try and convince them to embrace that new way of travelling? So in, 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 in conclusion, I think the intention is worthy in theory, but in reality, I think it's misguided. Mm. That sounds polite. 
sorry? I say that sounds polite, uh, describing it as misguided. Yeah, yeah, but that's my view on it, because, like... It's, I, it's a bit stupid, isn't it? No, I would say two things. Once the proper alternatives are put in place, mm. um, then it's something that can definitely be looked at. So I know, so but the, gov- the, the government just wants to take away the parking spaces without putting alternatives in place. Yeah, and that's what I think we need to do. So that's why I think this... Mm. this and, and that's, that's what I'm saying to you. It's a bit stupid, isn't it? Cart before I the w- horse. I, w- I, I, I wouldn't use the word stupid, but I would use the term you've just used there, cart before the horse. I think it's mm. premature, uh, to say the least. And I think uh, to take something away without providing something viable in exchange just isn't a smart move to do. Yeah. So, for example, when I talk about alternatives, like what, what are the alternatives, good and bad? So examples of good alternatives that have happened recently, for example... The DARD has expanded to Drogheda, the price equalisation between... Ah, well, hang on a second. They're they're, they're talking about extending it to Drogheda. (laughs) Okay, go on. No, but they're they're examples of where the Mm. NGA are perhaps providing an alternative. Mm. On the other hand, you know, I have four or five examples where they aren't. So, for example, flexible tax saver tickets that I've spoken to you about, that's still to be introduced. Last year, the NTA said they'd have contactless payments on all bus services by the end of 2023. Last month, they said it's years away. Mm. Uh, No other local authorities bar Dublin have a proper bike-sharing scheme, and even that is geographically limited. We're still waiting on legislation to pass through the Oireachtas about e-scooters, and for example, and I get the train regularly, I got it to work today, between the 9th of May and May 21st, uh, 13 days, there was 21 delays and disruptions to the enterprise between uh, Dundalk and Dublin. Mm. So we're not providing a good level of, or we're not providing a quality level of public transport yet. And that's it. And that's if you could get a seat. That, yeah. Well, this morning I stood the whole way from Dundalk. Well, no, not this morning. Uh, I had a seat this morning. On right. other occasions, you're paying price for a full ticket and you're standing the whole way from. Like Dundalk. it's crazy, and then you're trying to put more people onto that train. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things about it then is increasing the capacity of trains. So yeah. another thing you see with trains, I know we're going slightly off tangent here, but mm. is that it doesn't have a full enough uh, capacity of carriages. So whatever about grabbing a seat when you get on Dundalk in the Enterprise, if you're getting on a Drogheda, you're standing for the 30 minutes, but yet mm. you're still say, paying the same price. Okay. But perhaps that's a, a, a debate for you for another day. Oh, well, no, I think it's all part of the same debate, really. I mean, I said to you, but let's change that to crazy. It's crazy, isn't it? Uh, taking away parking spaces without an alternative. It's crazy uh, asking people to get out of their cars uh, to get onto a train that's late or that you can't get a seat on. Yeah, exactly. So if we get to the point where we are providing that high-quality public transport system, then we can start looking at mm. uh, uh, at reducing car parking spaces and cars. Because in reality, as I said at the Echo, no one wants to be sitting in their car in logjam or traffic. You know, if there is speedy, good public transport, excellent. Everyone's going everyone's gonna to want to use it. And when you look at the policy itself, I, I actually didn't realise how many public sector uh, workers are in Ireland until I did some research uh, yesterday for this. Uh, there's 300,000 public sector workers in the whole country. That makes up 13% of the entire Irish workforce. So that's not like... There are people right across the country, whether you're working for Revenue in Donegal, whether you're working mm. for a local authority in Kerry or Louth or whatever it is. So many of them are based around the entire country, not just a major city like Dublin. So I think the policy actually might work better if it focused on an urban area that has really good public transport, like Dublin, rather than inducing a, a blanket ban nationwide. I think mm. that would be a more realistic approach if they were to start out. Yeah, and what about carbon tax? Because it's the same argument, isn't it? I mean, it is the cart before the horse. Uh, no, I disagree with carbon tax. And I, I've spoken to you about that before in a, in a, in a few uh, good debates. But basically, the thing about carbon tax is all of that money is ring fence, 
and it goes back into really good projects, whether that's uh, retrofitting homes, whether it's providing for greenways, cycleways, segregated cycleways. All that money actually then goes back into providing really good things like a really good public transport system. Mm. So the thing about carbon tax is well, it's a tax on people, absolutely, but the money is ring fenced and it's going back into providing better services uh, mm. in a very targeted manner. So but at a, a time, uh, at a time when people can't afford to heat their homes or at a, a time when people can't afford uh, an electric car or is it a time when you wouldn't be bothered to buy an electric car because uh, they won't do the job uh, that you want to if you're doing any uh, amount of driving? It seems crazy, does it not? Yeah, well, electric vehicles are interesting because we have a huge target of wanting one million vehicles on the road by 2030. Uh, and some people say we wouldn't reach that target. Other people say we may do because the technology within electric cars, the range of the batteries will become so much improved in the next couple of years. But my view about an electric vehicle, and I'm a classic example, uh, you know, I'm not going to get an electric vehicle at this point in time unless I can get from yeah. Dundalk to Cork, you know, without having to stop in Leash. And there's yeah. two parking spaces for EVs of which one is broken and the other one is being used because someone's inside having their lunch. So until we improve the range, until we improve the charging network, again, this, this is my, you know, and I'm the climate action spokesperson in, in work here. Mm. This is my whole view of climate action. You have to make it as simplistic and as easy for people, I'm sorry, as simplistic and as feasible uh, for people to make that switch. Uh, and once we do that and make that switch, I think that's a much better approach. If you, again, I hate using cliches, but if you build it, they will come. So if you provide the infrastructure, people will make that switch very easily yeah. rather than taking something but away. But isn't that the time to... Car parking spaces. Isn't that the time w- w- when you get to that stage, going back to that cart before the horse argument, is when you get to that stage, is that not the time then to introduce a carbon tax? Sorry, Michael? When you get to that stage uh, where you have these uh, alternatives in place or electric vehicles are reliable, isn't that the stage uh, that you introduce carbon taxes on fuel? Oh, I get you. Uh, uh, no, I, I, I would disagree because we've had the carbon tax for a couple of years now. And like I said, the carbon tax goes towards so, so many, many things. You know, uh, mm. public transport obviously is a big thing. But like I mentioned, it goes towards retrofitting. It goes towards cycling infrastructure. It goes towards um, a whole variety of issues. And so carbon tax, you know, it's a very progressive tax because you're taxing a polluter and the money is going back in to make communities better and stronger. So mm. well, um, you're taxing a commuter who can't afford an electric car. And if you're wealthy enough to afford an electric car, uh, well, then um, that's good for you. Uh, and it's a little bit like the retrofitting. Many people can't uh, afford to heat their homes and they can't afford to retrofit them. Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, retrofitting, and again, it's something I've discussed with you before, um, the thing about retrofitting is that for people in real existence of fuel poverty, people who are at the you know the really, really tough ends of fuel poverty like you're talking about, they get a 100% free retrofit upgrade, you know, regardless of what their income is. So that's a really good thing. For people then who are more middle of the road, who want to maybe have solar panels on the roof or want to get cavities or wall insulation or roof insulation, stuff like that. Granted, it can be a chunk of money up front, but it's also backed up by long-term loans uh, that are at a fixed rate, a very low fixed rate. uh, And people can really get uh, saved by, by... by getting that retrofit, by backing up with a loan, you save. You can save up to sixty-seven percent on your en- energy bill. Mm. So it really makes a lot of money savings in the long term. In in the long term. And if you have the money up front, you can qualify for a grant as well, whether you borrow the money or not. But uh, 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 is is it um, value for money? Uh, I heard somebody say recently that 
they didn't get an SEAI grant. Uh, they went to a, a builder, uh, got their house retrofitted, uh, and it, it cost what it would have cost if they'd gone through the SEAI uh, and got the grant. Uh, in other words, uh, there was no saving going to the SEAI. Yeah, so what you're saying in that, in that example... It's far too bureaucratic, and I don't know who's taking up the money, but that's uh, apparently um, what's involved in getting a, a grant. It's gobbled up in the system. I got you, yeah. Uh, and I guess with grants in general, they're one of the things you have to try and, uh, uh, try and avoid, really, in best practice. Because, again, it's like what I said here with climate change. You want to make mm. it as financially viable, as simplistic as possible, and as feasible for people to do but that. But it's so very complicated, it really, isn't it? I mean, this is yeah, the whole point with all and uh, all of these examples. Uh, and there's so uh, many arguments uh, that we're uh, jumping ahead of ourselves. Yeah, and I think, j- just to finish the point about the grants, I think that's why it's so important to really try and minimise red tape as much as possible, to really try and cut down a bureaucracy as much as possible and to really make it as simplistic as possible for people to get those grants and, and draw them down in a timely fashion. Um, that it, it, can, it can be accessed very well with some grants and then other grants can be a bit more problematic in terms of that level of bureaucracy and getting them processed. I, I certainly do accept that. But the, the wider point, I suppose, that we're talking about here is everyone agrees. Like, we all want to get to the same place. We all want to you know, have a low carbon economy. We all want to reach our climate action targets by 2030 and on onwards. But we need to get there in a realistic, uh, a realistic approach, a proper stage. Uh, and like I said, I think just removing something like car parking spaces without providing a proper alternative, I, I just don't think that's fair on people who are living outside of a major city centre like a Dublin Cork or Galway, for example. Okay. Uh, and uh, how has your view been accepted in your party? Yeah, well, so this was only approved by Cabinet last week and uh, the Taoiseach was away last week for our parliamentary party uh, meetings on a Wednesday. He, w- he wasn't there last week. He was, he was in Iceland with a, with a trip. So we, he's back this Wednesday, um, which is tomorrow evening we have our meeting and I'm going to raise it there. Um, but I do accept that we're in a party with two other, we're in a government with two other political parties. One of them is the Green Party who is promoting this and that's fair enough, it's their right to do it. Um, so I do understand that there is, you know, concessions to be made or I have to be conscientious that there's three different political parties in our government but I'm just advocating for my view on this you know I am the climate action spokesperson I am you know very green friendly I want to see it I have a real interest in this area but I also want to make it easy for the average man and woman on the streets of our provincial towns and elsewhere to make Mm. that change Okay so you're opposed to Green Party policy on car parking Uh, I'm opposed to this policy yeah yeah Mm. absolutely Uh, but to be fair it's not Green Party government policy it was it was approved at Cabinet. So yep. it is, it's, it's your party's policy. policy yeah, yeah, yeah okay. it is indeed. Yeah. Okay, we leave it there, John. Thank you Thanks, indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Fine Gael Senator John McGahan. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks to our caller WhatsApping us saying carbon tax, public transport, electric cars, they're all the cart before the horse. The infrastructure, I beg your pardon, the infrastructure needs to be in place first. It's not rocket science. Uh, thanks, as I say, for your message uh, to the programme today. Thanks to, to Pat Navin, who says, Michael, there is no proper public transport system. You need somebody like Michael O'Leary to get the job done instead 
of uh, the gum beans that are currently there or words to that effect Pat thank you indeed uh, for your message to the programme today as well 0419832000 is uh, the telephone number text or WhatsApp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie an email uh, that uh, came to me from Liam says Michael most people want control of social media Uh, the content to be controlled uh, I'm not on social media but the events in Navin would not have been heard of without the same media thanks uh, for that uh, Liam somebody else in touch with us telling uh, that uh, this is Bernie Fox uh, she says she had to go for her NCT uh, uh, last Thursday I think it was uh, and she went into a, a local garage to get a, a car wash she asked if it was an NCT car wash yes uh, how much 10 euro However, she said she went to pay and she was told it was 20 euro. And she asked, uh, why was I told it was 10 if it's 20? Oh, because it's 10 for the wash and 10 extra for the NCT wash. Uh, she thought it was very expensive, uh, that they were charging so much and that they'd lose customers over it. Uh, <laughs> they asked her uh, for the money. She only had 50 euro and they didn't have uh, change. She had 10 and a fiver and they took the 50, <laughs> but it was a 20 euro charge. She just didn't understand it. Uh, and she said, was this a, a scam or was it because I'm a, a woman? Or uh, is this the cost of an NCT car wash? Thank you, Bernie. Uh, maybe somebody else will answer that for us. Now, there's been a a lot of talk uh, about uh, the cost of living, uh, the drop in the wholesale price of electricity, uh, and indeed what we're paying uh, when uh, the bills come in the door. Uh, It's something that we're uh, very used to. I suppose it's highlighted today uh, because of that 42.5% drop in wholesale prices. Uh, But we've been living with this for some time and it's an issue that's been raised again and again. Uh, It was raised in the Dáil last week and we didn't get the chance to bring coverage of this to you. But we'll hear uh, some incredible stories now from Sinn Féin's Sorka Clark. Last month, research revealed Irish electricity prices are the highest in Europe. Gas prices here are the highest in Europe as well. But this will come as no surprise to the consumers who are opening their bills to see those eye-watering amounts being demanded. Energy credits have long been spent and government is merely sitting on its hands. Minister, I want to tell you about one lady's recent experience of this crisis. An elderly lady in Leash, living alone after her husband sadly passed away last year. She received an electricity bill for €760, a colossal amount of money that she simply cannot afford. She applied for an additional needs payment to help cover the cost. Shockingly, she was refused support. Why? Because she has a small amount put away from her pension over the last year, saved for a headstone for her late husband's grave. Because of that refusal for help, she was forced to spend the money on the electricity bill instead of the headstone. Minister, her husband's anniversary is approaching and she is distraught that she will not have that headstone for his grave on time. Yet when her family called around to visit her last night, they found her sitting in the dark, terrified, of switching on the lights, worried sick about what the next bill might be and when these nightmare costs are going to end. Minister, this is appalling. 
And what does it say about us as a society that we are living in? Under Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, that this is the lived reality for a lady of that age. It really is a, a terrible story, isn't it? Having to choose between paying your bill or pay for your husband's headstone. Um, we've heard of heat or eat. Uh, but paying for the bill instead of the headstone and then sitting in the dark uh, because you're worried about uh, the next bill. Uh, that was just one story. And I'm going to tell you about another older person let down by your government. A 90-year-old woman in Dublin whose gas bills have gone from €200 Euro to €600. Euro. And she simply doesn't have the money for this. And unsurprisingly, she's fallen into arrears. But after questioning the bills, she was threatened with disconnection. She is absolutely beside herself, Minister. 90 years of age. Now, a few weeks ago, Sinn Féin brought forward a plan to cut energy costs and to cap them. This would have made a real difference to hard-pressed households. But your government blocked the plan and you failed to offer up any solutions of your own. You act like spectators to the catastrophe unfolding for workers and family, the length and breadth of this state. Instead of acting, you abandon people who need support now. From energy costs to food prices, spiralling rent, mortgage interest relief, it's clear we cannot afford to have you in government any longer. Hard stories, there is no doubt about it. There was a political point in all of uh, that, though, it has to be said, uh, but surprising at the same time how it, it resulted in a political spat. And that's why I'm a little bit surprised that you're mentioning energy, because you've gone terribly quiet on it uh, for a while. Because usually the opposition can stand up and say what they want, and we never get to see how it plays out in the real world. But actually, unfortunately for you, Liz Truss became the British Prime Minister, albeit for a very brief period of time. And during that time, I don't know whether she stole Mary Lou's homework or Mary Lou stole her homework, but you ended up, you ended up, you ended up with a scenario where they went ahead and did what you advised. And they brought in price caps. And they brought in price caps. They, br- they brought in price caps. And in, bringing in, and in bringing in the price caps, she managed to tank the pound. So, no, we're not going to follow the example. We're not going to follow the example of Liz Truss. We're not going to introduce price caps. And you know what? You come in here on a very regular basis and you say, have you seen the latest ESRI report? You regularly ask government ministers, have you seen what the ESRI said? We could probably paper the walls of this chamber with ESRI reports you'd like us to implement. So my question to you today is, have you seen what the energy economist in the ESRI, Mirren Lynch, said only two weeks ago uh, about the Sinn Féin proposal? Because she, not the government, not Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil or the Greens or whoever you want to pick on today, but actually the ESRI, they said that the price caps would, and I quote, so it means the energy providers can essentially jack their prices up as high as they want because they've absolutely no incentive to try to contain those costs and they know it's all going to be covered by the government. The only certainty your plan would provide is the certainty that the woman in Leash and the man in Dublin and everybody else watching this programme would have to put their hand in their pocket and hand their money over to the energy company. Thank you, Minister. That's why, that's why, that's why, that's why, Ken Corla, that's why, Ken Corla, we will not bring in a plan that is bad for the economy, bad for households, bad for climate, and the only people that would benefit is the energy companies. Thank instead, you, what we will do, instead, and I will shout it down, instead what we will do is legislate for Time a windfall tax to hit companies where it hurts in the pocket on their profits. Now, All right, that's uh, 
I don't know, actually, if that's good or bad news uh, for the 90-year-old woman or the woman who has to choose between paying her electricity bill and paying for the headstone on her husband's grave. Uh, But that was Simon Harris uh, responding to Sorker Clark last week. Uh, Now, a big day uh, for Ireland, a big day for Apple, uh, and indeed a big day for the European Commission who have all been fighting over what to do with over 13 billion euro plus interest that the Commission says Apple owes to Ireland. Ireland and Apple say no they don't because they did a couple of deals over the years uh, which resulted in that very peculiar situation where Apple had a base in Ireland, the Irish base, and they paid uh, the normal corporation tax but then they had a global office in Dublin Um, but that office really uh, was nothing more than a plate a gold plate, if you like, on uh, the outside of the building with nothing inside, no employees, no computers, no phones, no sign of any trading whatsoever. And all of its global profits went through that, uh, which um, meant that Apple really paid little or nothing in tax. Uh, Apple and Ireland won uh, the case against the Commission. The Commission is appealing it and it'll be heard again today. Apple's effective tax rate in 2011 was 0.05%. To put that in perspective, it means that for every million euro in profits, it paid just 500 euros in taxes. This effective tax rate dropped further to as little as 0.005% in 2014, which means that even less was paid in taxes, it was 50 euros per million in profits. This selective tax treatment of Apple in Ireland is illegal under EU state aid rules. And that's going back uh, to the original judgment from the European Commission back in 2016, Illegal. Ireland acted illegally in facilitating uh, this tax deal with Apple. 0.005% tax. I don't know. I'd be happy to pay €50 for every million I earn. (laughs) I think everybody... That's not paying tax. €50 in tax for every million euro in profit. Uh, And that's what this case hinges on. Uh, If the European Commission wins... Uh, Ireland will reluctantly have to take more than 13 billion euro off Apple. What will we do with it? Uh, I don't know, but uh, the government is right, of course, uh, in saying uh, that we'll be disgraced. I think that's uh, the reason uh, that they don't want to take that money off the Apple Corporation uh, because we'd be seen as a tax haven if we were to accept that to be the reality of the situation. Anyway, the highest court in Europe will be uh, hearing that case today. I think it'll be a a year before we get the ruling on it, uh, but it'll be an interesting one to watch indeed for many different reasons. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as usual, on Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. We're joined uh, this week for the report by Garda Olga Bacon from Trim Garda Station. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. We're going to begin with a report of a fatal road traffic collision. Good morning, Michael. Yes, on Wednesday, the 17th of May, Guardian Kells 
were made aware of a single vehicle road traffic collision at Mountain Pole and Kells. The collision happened shortly before midnight on the O147, which is the Kells to Virginia Road. The vehicle left the road and entered the river, and unfortunately, the sole male occupant passed away. Our forensic collision investigators have examined the scene. We're now hoping, and the investigation team at Kells Garden Station are appealing to any road users who may have witnessed the accident or anyone who may have had been on the roads and might have dash cam footage around that time to contact Kells Garden Station on 046-928-0820. OK, next to a renewed missing person appeal. Yes, so Vincent Dillon is a 19-year-old man who's been missing from his home in Dundalk for over a week. Vincent was last seen in the early hours of Sunday the 14th of May. Vincent is five foot four. he's white and of slight build, and he has short black hair and brown eyes. He's clean-shaven and was believed to be wearing a black jacket. Anyone with any information on Vincent's whereabouts has been asked to contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042-938-8400, or indeed any Garda Station will take that information from you. Yeah, indeed, if Vincent is listening, or if uh, somebody is listening that knows Vincent, uh, perhaps uh, Vincent uh, would give a, a call to his family or somebody who trusts. Uh, after nine days, I'm sure they're... Uh, very concerned uh, about him and they probably would like to know that he, he's okay if he could make contact. Uh, we have a, a burglary to report on next in Balrath. Yes, the Gardaí at Navan Garda Station are investigating a burglary that occurred at Janestown in Balrath in Navan on Friday the 19th of May between 10.30am and 2pm. The homeowner was away from their home and when they returned they discovered the house had been broken into and ransacked and a small sum of cash was taken. If you're in the area or saw anything, or again, if you were driving through and maybe have dash cam footage that could help Gardy with his investigation, we're asking you to contact Navangarda Station on 046-907-9930. To uh, an assault uh, that uh, occurred last Friday then? Yes, Gardy at Dundalk Garda Station are investigating an assault that occurred on Key Street in Dundalk at around 6am on Friday morning, the 19th of May. A male was assaulted and when Gardy arrived, he was bleeding quite heavily. He was taken by ambulance to hospital where he was tre- received treatment. The investigation team at Dundalk Garda Station are hoping to speak to any witnesses or drivers, again, who may have dash cam footage. You're being asked to contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042-9388-400. Uh, another burglary to report on. Now, this happened on Sunday gone by in Omeath. Yes, Gardaí at Omeath Garda Station are investigating a burglary that happened on Sunday morning and it was between 9.45am and 11am. The homeowner was out and when they returned, they saw the kitchen door was broken and the home was ransacked. Um, it's quite an out-of-the-way location. It's in um, Balnaskin in Omeath, um, where you wouldn't have much passing traffic. So we're just hoping that somebody was in the area and may have seen something and if they could contact the investigation team at Dundalk at the station on 042-9388-400. To Dunboyne then, uh, where Gardaí are investigating some criminal damage. Yes, we're investigating a fire that happened on Sunday the 21st of May at around 3pm. So this happened on the Maynooth Road in Dunboyne, where around 300 bales of hay were burnt in a hay shed. We're looking to speak to anyone who may have investigation about this fire and the investigation team can be contacted at Ashburn Garda Station 
on 0180 Terrible, senseless thing to have done. Um, we're going to conclude uh, with some events uh, that are scheduled for the week ahead. So this is our community um, engagement week um, between ourselves and the IFA. So just a couple of times and um, places to note. Tomorrow in Rathout, between 11.30 and 1.30, we have the Ashburn Community Engagement Team and they'll be out and about giving advice on a wide range of topics. In Dundalk, tomorrow afternoon from half two to five o'clock at the Kilcurry Resource Centre, the community policing unit there will be providing property marking. This is suitable for everything except glass. The Crime Prevention Officer, Sergeant Heavey, will also be there to provide advice. On Thursday, between 12 and 3 p.m., the Dundalk Community Engagements will be at the Ballalurgan service station and also present will be the resource officer for suicide prevention and we're hoping to talk to the community regarding mental well-being, stress and anxiety in young people and raise awareness on suicide. And finally on Friday the 26th between 12 and 3pm at Mullaboy Hall in Carlingford the uh, Dundalk Community Engagement Team will be there with Declan Mills of the IFA to provide advice around farm safety and protecting yards and also Carol Redmond of Embrace Farms will be there. Embrace Farms provides a support network for those affected by farm accidents in Ireland. Very good. Thank you indeed. Garda Olga Bacon and Trim Garda Station will return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now before we leave you today we're going to hear once again from the Citizens Assembly on Drugs Use. Uh, over the course of the month we'll be hearing from some of the contributors and some of the stories that they've been telling about their experience of drugs. Um, I come from the Traveller community um, and I too had to deal with addiction issues myself um, many years back now and the struggles for me as a travelling woman uh, in my own community and the shame it brought on me and the kids was uh, was a lot to deal with and then to have to come in and have the stigma from the outside so I had double stigma um, and my kids too was taken from me from for being on, on drugs and I had a long journey to get them back um, and the struggles I face with discrimination and in my own community uh, was hard to bear um, at times and I too also had to be taken away from the kids the kids to be taken away from me if I'm to be honest um, and from the moment I picked up a drug until you know it was just it just expired and expired before I knew it my family was affected like, I'm the oldest of seven. I'm the oldest daughter of the family. Well, my sisters, my, I was the oldest, and I was brought up to always be, you know, the care in the home uh, and uh, the one to look up to. Um, and the relationships between my family, uh, my mother and father, you know, the shame on them. They didn't know how to deal with, with it. They didn't have any knowledge of how to deal with it, you know. My sister stopped talking to me. My mom didn't know how to deal with me, you know. Most times they see me, I was affected. I'd walk in the streets and they'd walk past me, drive past me, as if, because I just didn't understand how to deal with an addict. Um, my mother's mental health was at her and she'd suffered for many years after. I think it was the worry of knowing when I was going to be back, where I was. Am I going to be alive tomorrow? Or waiting on that phone call? Is it? 
is she gone? You know? Um, and looking back now, um, my kids were going to school and they were dealing with the stigma of, look, as far as I knew back then, I was the first traveling woman to be ever known to be on heavy drugs. And when I landed in my community, I was the only one that I knew. And the, if anybody, my family and my kids suffered the most, you know. And I know I'm one of the lucky ones to sit in this chair and say, look, I came through all them struggles. I went to prison a couple of times, you know. Um, and the last sentence I done, I didn't have any kids. I didn't have any family. I didn't have nothing. You know, I was just, everything was gone. Um, and I didn't know how to deal with, with what I was dealing with. And so my family didn't know. I said, all they could do. So from that moment on, look, I'm sitting here clean. I have my family back in my life. It took a lot of work, but there was a lot of challenges for a travelling woman. And that's just part of Anne-Marie Sweeney's story from uh, the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs Use. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.